Uh, today I begin the first of 12, maybe 13 messages on building and establishing and maintaining a firm foundation in your spiritual walk. It's more than that though. A couple hundred of you have joined me um, and others in the church at the farm, the barn, for a Saturday look at spiritual formation, a new discipleship strategy for, for Community Bible Church. It's more than that, though. Uh, we have four tracks to cover. We'll cover probably two this year. The first is a found, firm foundation. The second is freedom in Christ. We'll move on to the purpose and person of the Holy Spirit next year. And then beyond that, we'll talk about the Lordship, living in the Lordship of Christ. But it's more than that. Uh, I think it started probably long before I came to Christ, but the church has gone through ups and downs as it pertains to the subject of discipleship. Some of you have been um, discipled personally by others. Others of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, it first started in my own personal life when I began to see, as a, as a young pastor, um, we sort of divorced ourselves from Sunday night services. And Sunday nights became Wednesday nights. And it looked as though in our culture and in the church today in America, we were having less and less time for God and more and more time for other things. And to whatever extent we had a discipleship strategy, it sort of went by the wayside. And the personal discipleship of one to another, which is God's, in God's economy, his design and his desire, there became um, something totally not that. And it lacked uh, accountability. It lacked uh, uh, helping one another in ways that we need to be helped. Now, that's not true of all of us, by any means. And then I, I began to learn as I came here that the Sunday morning service in this particular church is, is a popular thing, but more popular than other areas of the church. Now there are all kinds of models. I'm not up on one model versus another, but I have come uh, to realize something that I, to be prudent and wise, need to change my strategy for ministry, which I'm starting effective immediately. Uh, if people are not taught what needs to be taught. And if they don't see the disciple, the, the definition of a disciple is one who makes disciples of others, then we're in trouble. We're already losing. We're already losing this couple generations right now for foolishness over the past three, four years. So our Sunday services, the messages that I give will be given in a different manner from now on. And I can go into all kind of detail as we go. But you'll, you'll see one of these sheets every week that you come in. Um, it's called the Faith in Action Sheet. It has a couple blanks on it and a memory verse at the bottom. To those who will, I'm calling you to memorize the scripture. And I'm no longer counting on you actually doing that on your own or people doing that in a Sunday school class because people don't attend Sunday school classes like they used to. So I'm going to incorporate memory verses, 10 for this particular 12-week series. The first one is on the bottom, John chapter 3, verse 3 and 5. And I'm also going to provide 
a parallel track of seminars and workshops and assignments that go along with this sermon series that those who choose to fulfill the requirements of which will, quote, graduate from that. I'm also, uh, this is a dangerous part and risky for me, I'm also going to teach some of these subjects not on a high school or college level, but on a master's degree level, and you're going to have to learn how to think and use your mind. Today's one of those. I see one of the greatest problems we have in the church today is a growing misunderstanding on how to use the scripture. It's used in the wrong way at the wrong times to make the wrong arguments. The second thing that I see is the greatest need that we have is people don't know how to think critically, and we have a confirmation bias. We don't understand how to look at the original intent of what the Bible is all about, and we distort it into meaning something that's not even meant to mean, and we end up with something that's really ineffective. That's the bad news. The good news is I'm going to try to address these issues. It's not easy. Teaching what I'm about to teach, most of you have never heard. It'll be the first time you've ever heard this. And it's the first time you've ever heard this because it's evidence of the fact we've only been told what other people have told us and what they've told us when they've told us. And if something starts out wrong, it's incomplete as we keep continue to repeat it. Today's account's going to be about the creation. There's more to the creation account than we can actually see or have been taught. So I want to try to share these things with you in such a way that you begin to look at the Bible differently, use it differently, and apply it to your life differently. And hold you accountable to do that to whatever extent that's possible in this forum. I don't really know how that's going to go. I do know that I have 20 years left of ministry in me, and I'm going to reach the lost, and I'm going to make disciples. And I know that there's a greater hunger all around the world to be a discipler and a, 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 to be discipled and to be saved. And if I can't do that here, I'll do it elsewhere. I'm going to make disciples and I'm going to reach the lost. Period. And I hope you want to make disciples and reach the lost too. If not, we're going to have a parting of the ways. Because this is what we're called to do. We're not called to do what we want to do. This is what we're commanded to do, okay? So having said that, in a sober, negative way, let's start this 12-week series. Every message will, will be one word for the next 12 weeks, and they end in A-L-L-Y. This message is entitled, Originally. Originally. It focuses on the creation account, because if we don't adopt this, what I'm about to tell you, into our life, we will be living at about 50% capacity of what God has for us. And I'm being nice. We have to understand how the creation account, the first thing that God says in the Bible, must be applied to our life. And if this is void, if this area is void and not filled adequately, earnestly, sincerely, and authentically, then we're going to go about our Christian lives operating on about 50% of what God has for us. We will be about 50% attractive to the lost. I'm just going to read this to you. Listen, just listen. A lot of these messages are going to take two times to listen to them. I'm just telling you up front. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
All right, we've heard that. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. You ever feel like you're being beat on? I just came through one of the biggest stalls, slowdowns of my spiritual walk of almost three decades. And I finally realized what it was I needed to do to get out of it. I needed to go back to go forward. I needed to go back to the fundamentals, to the basics, to the things I was taught and practice them if I even had any chance of going forward with an increased level of fruitfulness and intensity and passion and joy and laughter and all the things that go with it. I had to go back. If there's anything you have to go back to from time to time, it's this lesson right here. This is it. And if, if there's anything you need to start your walk with, I would say restart. I would say clean slate and start all over. It's this right here. I'm trying to be as clear as I possibly can with you. If you miss this, you miss 50% at least of what it is you're looking for in life. Well, anyway, they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Right, what is that rock? What is, what is he talking about? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Our spiritual life in Christ has to be established in a deep spiritual footer. The column of uh, rebar and concrete that go deep into the ground, the deepest, lowest part of that footer, of that spiritual pillar, has to be this message. If it's not, we're in trouble. It's a deep spiritual footer that hits the bedrock of our faith. It gives us the stability that we need in our life. It gives us the endurance to endure storms. It gives us resiliency. It gives us uh, the stability and balance we need. It is primary of paramount importance. It is essential that if we're going to be successful in this life, I mean all of life, then this has to be the deepest part of our reality. It has to be more than a concept, more than a construct. It has to be our behavior, not just behavior. It has to be earnest, authentic, sincere behavior. This is it. If you don't go back and shore this up, you're going to get washed down the river, Ben. Let me say it another way. If you attend church and this part of that spiritual footer is not earnest in your life, you'll, you'll turn against the church. If you pray and this part of your spiritual life isn't a reality to you, your prayers sometimes will fall on deaf ears. You'll begin to question your faith, question God, question the church, question the purpose of your life. If this part of your spiritual footer is weak, or if perfunctory, or if it's a duty, or if it's hollow, I'll go ahead and tell you, if you don't and I don't grasp the reality of the sincerity of what I'm about to tell you, there's the deepest part of who you are, you eventually will become disappointed with one another, with the church, and the Bible won't even speak to you. It's that important. 
And to tell you how important it is and why I have to be so clear about it is not everyone in this room knows what the subject is yet. And that's the point. We have to. We have to because it's the first thing God says in the Bible. It's the last thing he says in the Bible. And it's the most important. And we cannot water it down. Cannot. We just need to go back to go forward. I see people today in the church that have abandoned this subject and they've made the minor the major. They've studied the Nephilim and the giants of the, of the book of Genesis. They've made that their, their focal point of their entire spiritual walk. They've taken something so minor and made it so major at the expense of everything that God's called them to do. I've seen foolishness and prophecies and things of this nature and that nature become so much more important than this one thing. And slowly but surely, the foundation of that spiritual house begins to erode. It's happening in the church culturally. It's happening in individuals' lives. It's happening in homes. To begin your walk with Jesus Christ and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior in the context of a church and think that's all you have to do and and you're going to make it up as you go, you will render yourself ineffective. It's meant to be done in community. It's meant to be done with accountability. It's meant to be done under spiritual authority. What am I talking about? All right, let's start with the creation account. The first thing God has to say in the Bible. This passage, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, earth was formless and empty, darkness hovered over the surface of deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. Then he goes through six straight days of creation, and he ends with the first three verses of Genesis 2. We have adopted this passage as a way of understanding, debating, if not arguing at times how the earth was created. We've, we've uh, over time, we've, we've put ourselves in camps. Young earth, 4,000, 5,000 years old. Old earth, billions of years old. We've, uh, we've contemplated and pontificated and debated online between these two things. We've made it a focal point. We've gotten science involved. We've, we've, we've picked it apart a million different ways about what actually happened and how it came to be and when it happened and all of that stuff. And, and the interesting thing about the passage is primarily I don't think that's at all why it was written. I think it's not primarily about how the world was created and when it was created and what we're supposed to get out of that. And I think sometimes someone has to say stop and time out and consider this question. Why was it created? It's far more important than how. Anybody with half a brain can figure out that man didn't create the earth and the heavens. Anybody. I mean, science has finally caught up with that. I mean, that's not hard to figure out if you've done any travel, done anything, and have any common sense at all. You know that there's an intelligent design, there's someone beyond ourselves that helped create this earth. I mean, that's so, like, basic. 
But we've made the basic thing the most complicated thing. We've focused on that when, okay, whatever, get what you want out of it, but there's a bigger reason why the earth was created. And that's what we need. And because we don't know that, we miss our role in the creation with the creator, and we end up operating at a much lower level than what we're called to. You can study young, old earth, redshift, big bang, epochs of seasons of time, 24-hour days, the history, all of that. Go for it. But do that after you figure out why the earth was created. Please. Why was it created? Well, first of all, from Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, is not a historical narrative. I'm going to do a whole one-day seminar on how to understand the Bible. We'll talk, we'll talk about that then. But it's not primarily meant to be a historical narrative so that we can put together the pieces and sequentially, if not chronologically, put the, fill in the blanks and figure out what happened on what day and for what reason. It's not meant, to, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a literary, artistic writing is what it is. No more than you would look at a painting, a beautiful painting, and surmise things from the painting that's just a work of art that wasn't intended to inform you on every level of everything that's happening in the painting. It's a, it's a Hebrew writing that's literary in nature, not historic. It's not a document uh, for, uh, for teaching narratives about history or chronology. It's a literary, artistic masterpiece. That's what it is. Written by Moses. All right, this is where it gets difficult, and I want to I lose you in the woods here. Genesis 1 and 1 is one bookend. It's one, it's one bookend on this side. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 3 is the other bookend. This is when the creation starts. Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3 is when the account is over and there's, God rests. That's it. Days 1 through 6 are in the middle of those two bookends. Okay? In Hebrew writing, these two bookends are called inclusios. Another word for inclusio is an envelope. It is the boundaries established by these two peripheral statements that define what everything in between them are supposed to be about. You with me? All right. Now, let's take it a step further. In each of the days of creation, the following things are said in some way, shape, or form. And God said, and it was so, and God saw, and it was good, and it was evening, and it was a morning. This pattern exists in each of the days of creation. If you look at the pattern of how these statements are made without getting into a lot of detail, you'll find that the days of creation are not meant to be understood one, two, three, four, five, six, but they're meant to be understood in relationship to one another. Symmetrical relationship. Look at your body. Look at this picture of a butterfly. Look at a picture of a peacock. That, that butterfly is basically, perfectly symmetrical. Okay, let's look at that butterfly again. The left side and the right side match up. For the most part, with slight deviations, your body is symmetrical. 
I heard a comedian the other day, <laughs> heard a comedian the other day, went to the optometrist, and the op- optometrist had the gall to tell him his right eye was lower than his left, and now he's walking around conscious of that fact the rest of his life. It's horrible. It's really messed him up. But for the most part, if you split us right down the middle, we have two halves, right? We marry each other. A peacock, no different. Most everything in creation that's living is symmetrical. All right. The first six days of creation are symmetrical. Based on the statements that are made in each, we can talk about this at another time, but basically, day one and day four go together. Day two and day five go together. And day three and day six go together. And basically what happens, for instance, two and five, God creates an expanse separating the water above from the water below. First thing he does is he creates a space. He, he delineates one thing from another. He differentiates them. And all of a sudden now they're empty canvases. And that's what he does. The second thing he does, he does that on day two. On day five, he creates the birds and the fish. Now the birds and the fish are going to occupy the spaces, the air and the water. You see that? So he starts with something empty, an expanse, uh, a clean canvas, and then he occupies that with birds and fish. Look at uh, three and six. He creates dry land and plants, and then he symmetrically complements that side with animals and creates people in his image to actually occupy the dry land and to uh, occupy the plants. You see that? He creates light as a source, and then he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun is a source of light. Light has to be created first. Then the moon reflects the light, and the stars uh, do likewise, and then they run out of light. So, again, I don't want you to fall out of the boat, but there's a relationship between one and four, two and five, three and six. Symmetrical, complementary relationship between those two things. And he, and he has two bookends on either side of that account. And the first one is God in the beginning, God. In the beginning is one, God created two, heavens and earth, three. If you fast forward to the other bookend, he starts with, and he inverts the order. Moses inverts the order of the first verse of the Bible. And he says, heaven's first, God finished, and then finally God rested. What's the point here? In the ancient Near East, the Mesopotamia, Egypt, 2,300 years before Christ, even before that, most every civilization had an understanding of the creation account. Uh, oftentimes when you get to study in the creation, someone will ask the question, well, the Babylonians had the same thing. It's true. Most everybody understood that creation, the earth, was created. It was not hard to figure out. They mostly had the same narrative, but God gave Moses the second bookend. And by inverting the two, he then made his point, and people of that day would have understood it. People today don't have the time to understand it. And the point is this. Every culture in the ancient Near East was understanding of the temple. And the temple was something that was made. It had a beginning. God inhabited the temple if he was in town. 
No one could go in the temple. It was forbidden. But the temple was to be maintained. There was a sacrificial system that could get you partially into the temple. And that's what they did. The Babylonians knew that. The Canaanites knew that. Everybody knew that. It took work to build something. God would inhabit it when he felt like it. And sometimes you had access to him. Sometimes you didn't. Now, what Moses says in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, totally wrecks the whole idea. He basically says that a temple is not created. Creation is the temple. And God and man inhabit creation together. They have access to one another. They have fellowship with one another. And man can worship God. By throwing the first three verses of chapter 2 into the mix, God, through Moses, totally wrecks the structure that there's a temple that has to be made. God's going to inhabit it. You can't access it. In fact, when temples were made, they usually made in increments of seven. Seven years or some multiple of seven. That meant it was complete. That's why the whole thing takes seven days Not literal days, seven days for all of creation. So what God wanted to do is create a temple called the Garden of Eden that he created, not man, that man was accessible to and could fellowship with him. God could walk in the cool of the day looking for Adam. They could could be friends. They could be fruitful and multiply. They didn't have to work the ground. They didn't have to do anything. God now introduces the God of the Bible to all civilizations and the creation of count that this isn't about laboring to not have access to God. This is about not laboring, God laboring, and the rest is the enjoyment of the fellowship between the two. That's what this really is about. It's not what did he create, it's why. And he created the garden to fellowship with you and Adam and Eve. Originally, that was God's intent. Originally, that was the first thing he wanted mankind to know. Originally, it's the first thing he taught all the nations through the creation account. Originally, that's what he wanted. Except for free choice. Originally, God wanted man not to sin. God decided originally that original sin was too attractive. Now, the temple's closed. The garden's closed. Now... Exodus 19 and 12, you can only go so far up to Mount Sinai, you can't go up in his presence. Now, only the high priest on the day of atonement can go into the Holy of Holies. Now, we can't access the temple. Okay? Our sin sent us back to the same model the Mesopotamians had. When God only wanted to have free access to you, 247, to enjoy you and me for us to worship him. But yet he left the story before every civilization in hopes that one day someone would explain it to them or they see it for themselves that their God that wasn't accessible for whom they had to sacrifice wanted nothing to do with them half the time and wasn't present the rest of the time. So there it is doesn't matter if it's day one or 2023. God's original intent was for you to worship him in spirit and in truth. To have free access to him anytime, day or night.
I cannot imagine how restrictive Adam and Eve must have felt after they were banished from the garden. Everything that they enjoyed in their life had been taken away from them, and they couldn't get back to who it was they wanted to get back to. Not in the fullness of who he was and the fullness of who they They were defined by his presence. They longed for his presence. They did not have anything contradictory than being in his presence. And once they were out of his presence, they realized what they had done. Fast forward to right now. If we don't understand what it means to experientially access the presence of God in worship then we don't have any clue whatsoever what we're without. The most paramount thing a human being can do is worship in the manifest presence of God. We have a perspective other, they did not have. <laughs> we have a sacrificial system. God gave us a sacrificial system, gives us access to him. You know, when you walk into a temple, um, most people look at it this way. Most of the world, whether it's a mosque or a Hindu temple, church. When you walk across the threshold of a building, it's ornamental, got specific colors. It could have glass in it. It could have picture glass, stained glass. When you walk across that threshold, the lighting's different. The sound's different. The decorations are different. The furniture's different. The purpose of the furniture is different. The people act different. Everything's different once you walk into the threshold of the church, supposedly, right? Hindus and Islam have, have, have totally embraced this. But when God says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, do we really, really, really know? If your worship is disingenuine, perfunctory, absent, deluded. Your entire lens in which you view your life, who you are, what you're doing, your identity, you're coming in and you're going out is jaded. That's why it's the most important thing at the bottom of that spiritual footer If you don't worship, you just pray, you just give, you just attend, you just do what you're told. And if you don't worship, you're missing the entirety of the message of why you're on this earth. You can talk to me all day long about how you want to look at the scripture in different ways. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why you have to go back to go forward. Going forward is not just amassing more information and more knowledge and studying more. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. But knowledge, apart from worship, it has no boundaries. It has no perspective. It has no meaning. Some of you still don't know what I'm talking about. Let me get clearer. John 4, 21 to 24. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, 
Mountains are often associated with worship. Or ziggurats. Nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit and worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. In the spirit, capital S, and in truth. The original intent of God when he created you is for you to worship him. Worship, worship, worship. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Worship, then prayer. Worship, then fellowship. Worship, then calling. Worship, then ministry. Worship, then marriage. Worship, then raising your children. Worship, 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 worship. How can we not worship the one who became the sacrificial system that gave us access to God? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one come unto the Father except through me. A church that allows worship to be secondary is in trouble. Let me oversimplify it for you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. I know that deliverance ministry is important. But deliverance ministry without worship, you've majored on the minor. Prophecies that guide your life without worship, you've majored on the minor. Peripheral issues in the scripture have little to do with anything in everyday life here. You've majored on the minor. Prayer without worship, you've majored on the minor. To be in the, your automobile is a temple. Your body is a temple. Your church is a temple. The question is not whether you're in those places, it's what you do with it. It doesn't matter whether you want to or not, you're called to worship, exalt, magnify, extol the name of God. Now, your prayer life has to start right where I'm about to tell you, and if it doesn't, you're, getting, you're skipping the most important parts of your life. Your prayer life, when you feel least like worshiping, has to do with a petition, a plea, a heart cry, a desperation for a passion to worship. Authentically. That the number one prayer is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's worship. See, the number one thing your prayer life has to necessitate, and it's an empty space that has to be filled, is I need a desire to authentically worship Christ that's ever increasing, ever intimate, and ever important. If worship to you is singing a song, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I can't stand this. I can't worship unless I hear a certain genre song and a certain volume. I get that. That's important. But if you can't on your own with every hour of the week develop a cultivate a desire to worship and wait for the one 30-minute segment of the week when it's offered to you and you can't worship, it's not because of the song. It's not because of the volume. It's because there's 168 hours in the week and 167 and a half of them you haven't worshipped. 
You have to, I have to, mandated to. Figure out how in relationship to God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives you what it is you need to want to worship. To long to worship. Said another way. Before I moved to the mountains, I was a flatlander. I lived in Atlanta. I could run better than Forrest Gump. I could run like the wind blows. I could run a marathon. I could run a marathon without training. I could go to Powers Ferry in 285 at 30 years old, and there were 18-year-olds who couldn't keep up with me. I could run. I had a runner's high. I had endurance. I started out running, and I didn't like it, and I kept running, and I kept running. And all of a sudden, I got to this place where physically, psychologically, spiritually, when I ran, it was effortless. It really was. It was effortless. I mean, I wasn't tired. I had more energy after the run than I did before. I, I had an openness of mind. I had creativity. I could solve problems. I would worship while I ran. It was effortless. And if I took a day off, I felt gross, lethargic. It started out where the next day I was sore and I couldn't walk. It got to the point was if I took a day off, I felt terrible. I wanted to run. And guess what? What we all have in common here today is two things. We're all sinners. And number one, for the most part, we do what we want. We do what we want. Even when we do it, we know it's wrong. We do it because we want to. The depth, the lowest point, where the rebar runs out, the concrete runs out, that holds your life up when, the, when you get beat on by the storms of life. It's a desire to worship God more than money, power, status, understanding, learnedness, status, whatever. And you don't have to have all the things in the universe line up at the right time for you to let yourself go and worship. You do that anyway. You do that anyway. If you come to church and someone plays a song and you don't like it and you have a hard time worshiping, you should have absolutely no trouble using that time to not think about the song, but to be praying for someone else. That's how it works. Worship, worship, worship. Don't worship in your own strength. Worship in the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to give you. Who are the best worshipers? Children. Who are the most honest ones? Children. Who don't make it complex and keep it simple and earnest and intimate? Children. What gets in the way of worship? Sophistication. Complexity. Overbearing mountains of legalism and doctrine and whatever. If you want to go forward, you have to go back. Go back to your childhood. Maybe not your childhood literally, but your childhood in the kingdom. There it is. It's right there. Go look at it. Go capture that, then move forward. Worship.
worship. Worship. I can believe and not worship. I can pray and not worship. I can attend church and not worship. I can serve around the church, cut the hedges, repair things, cut the grass, and not worship. These guys that work for me on the farm, I, I say to them all the time, I have to come up with something new now because I've said it so often, it probably doesn't mean anything. Work is worship, and we love to worship. So now they have headphones on, listening to scripture, podcasts, and every time I ask them something, I'm interrupting them. I'm interrupting something of substance to ask them to do something. Worship. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Every scheme of the darkness is to keep you from worshiping God. It's really that simple. If you have an assignment in the United States of America, get them to worship something other than God. And usually it has something to do with ourselves, our way of life, our republic, our democracy, our something. You start worshiping that, and you're not worshiping him. It's the way it works. And they can be noble pursuits, but he's most noble. You want to lose judgment? Sacrifice your character and credibility. Replace something above him in your life. Fixate on it. Worship it. Make it an idol. You'll lose all effectiveness and credibility with the people around you. You'll have no favor and no good name in the sight of God and man. Take a preacher. Let him puff himself up. Let him walk in affluence and opulence and make tons and tons of money and be on television. Eventually, he's going to fall. Why? Because somewhere along the line, he worshiped the process or the destination and not the God who gave him the calling. There it is. Worship. How would you start a 12-week series on building a strong foundation? You'd start in the first words of God, in the first two paragraphs of the Bible, realize that he's telling the whole world, even as an evangelist at that time, that this is a temple not built by hands, but built by God to fellowship one with the other. And we've made it a YouTube debate about the theory of how creation came about. What or who are you magnifying? Problems, patterns, faults, frustration, anxiety. What do you magnify? Let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. What empty space in your life needs filling? Fill it with worship. On this sheet here, this is where I really get into trouble with you. The message you will hear today is uncommon and essential to establish and build upon a firm spiritual foundation. One must know why we were created and what is paramount in life. We are the pinnacle of all things created. God saved man for last, the cherry on top. 
the thing he longed for the most, he laid out everything in front of him and gave him and protected him and gave him all the provision he needed to, to enjoy his life. It's like the mom who goes out and, and before the baby's in the seventh, sixth, seventh month of pregnancy, goes out and the whole nursery's done. It's painted, the crib, the bassinet, the bottles, the blankies, they're all there. God does that with creation. So that when man shows up, everything is set. I'm going to protect you. You have nothing to worry about. I'm going to meet every one of your needs. It's all laid out right here in this garden. Originally, that's all God wanted to do. Until original sin came along. And now we're like the Mesopotamians. Trying to figure out how to get back to God. We each exist worship the Almighty. You've heard me say this before, and we'll say it one more time. When Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on a horse, on a, on a donkey, as a king would, people are laying their clothes down in front of this grubby, smelly animal. They're shouting Psalm 118. They're singing. Imagine that he's on that donkey and you're standing there. You are standing there. And you see all these people doing what they're doing. And it's as if he walks nearer and nearer to you as if the donkey stops and looks you straight in the eye, stares at you to the neglect of everything else around him. And all you can see is him and all he can see is you. And you're locked on eye to eye as though everything stops and the sounds fade. In that moment, praise stopped and worship began. Praise without worship won't get it done. There has to be a genuine connection. There has to be an intimate acknowledgement. There must be I know and I am known in the relationship that starts right in the beginning of the Bible, the deepest part of your spiritual footer. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God, if you have a desire to do so. If you don't have a desire to do so, don't do it. Back up and pray for the desire so that when you do worship, it actually is meaningful, heartfelt, authentic, and sincere. That's all we got to do. Faith in action. All right, here's where I get in trouble, and everybody says, sounds like, yeah, this guy's, what, he's asking a little much here. Write a personal, I wouldn't even be able to get through the sentence without someone dismissing this. Write a personal, you could even say private, and reflective letter to the Lord regarding your worship of him. Ask questions. How pleased is he? Does he enjoy it? Does it exist? What questions do you have? Might you ask him for a desire to do so? What am I missing by carrying on the way that I am? And what do I have because I carry the way on the way I am? What do I have in my life because I worship? And what am I missing because I don't? 
That's a letter worth writing, I can tell you. Does anyone not know what a letter is? Google it. They have them now. They've been around for years. Like, people have written them. They're in the Bible, actually. A letter is something you write. It's really something. What changes are appropriate? What aspects of your worship are authentic and strong? Then turn your letter into a prayer. My guess is 5% of people would do that. Five. The single most important thing that we can do in our life has to be more than 5% participation. I'm nothing. Nothing. But I'll say this. If you listen to what is said through me, it will bend you. It will alter you. In some cases, it will brick you. Let me say it again. I am nothing. But if you listen for the next 12 weeks, what is said through me, it will bend you, it will break you, it will alter you. If you don't listen, or you pretend to listen, or you listen and don't act upon it, you hear but don't heed, it will actually send you backwards. Because you'll have the understanding of what you should do, and you're not doing it, it'll cause you a deeper level of frustration and conviction. And then, we have a memory verse every week. Not necessarily associated with the message, but nonetheless important. This week, John 3, verse 3 and 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. I want to encourage you to memorize those two verses this week. In whatever way you need to. Make them a part of your life. Start a book. Take notes. Church has just changed. The schoolhouse is open. And so is the laboratory where we put it into practice. Can't do it anymore the other way. Too frustrating. People let me down. I overestimate them. And so do you and so do I. What is a disciple? A person who's prepared and willing to disciple another. And who is that? Those who put into practice what the word of God has to say. Because faith without works is dead. James 2 and 19. All right, there it is. Your creation is a temple. And you were created to inhabit that space. And have full access to God 24-7. The question remains, will you? Will you take advantage of that luxury? Or will you push them away? Good questions. I ask them of myself. May you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God this week. Early in the morning may you seek him. Late at night, middle of the afternoon, after lunch, before your siesta, before and after a nap. Who cares? Just seek him and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Only if you have the desire to do so. 
do not bring lame worship to the throne of grace. Ask for the desire to do it first. Let's pray. Lord, only you can take a only you can take a Super Bowl advertisement and draw people to yourself. Only you could fund that. Only you could make an evangelistic statement to the nations and all cultures of the world, known at the time and unknown in the future, that creation is a temple and we're called to worship and we have access to God. Hmm. To whatever extent we're not on board with what you've called us to enjoy, would you please keep us from hindering the enjoyment you intended for us to have? Would you keep us from hindering the joy, the laughter, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the intense purpose behind what you wanted for us? Keep us from ruining our own walks and help us to enjoy you 24-7 in spirit and in truth. And everyone said, amen. Write a letter. Memorize a verse. Do more than memorize it. Make it a part of your heart. Hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. Now we're getting somewhere. All right. Enjoy your afternoon. This is a week of fasting. While you're writing the letter, ask him how you might fast. We've got some decisions to make, don't we? And the ball, my friend, is in your court. You're dismissed. I love you in the Lord. Be careful getting home, right? And let's get the jump on the Baptist. All right, see you at lunch.